Well, I'll be off to the side here this morning so that I don't get blinded by the light. And uh, my name is Trev. If you're brand new to Urban Grace, uh, the majority of you may not be because this was a hard place to get to, but I'm so excited and encouraged uh, how many people uh, showed up on a Sunday morning in a different part of town. Uh, just for one Sunday, we will be Suburban Grace here. We're just, just outside of the cusp, and so welcome to Suburban Grace this morning. Um, and I, I, I love this church. I, if, if I was kicked out, I'd want to show up and become one of you. But um, I'm so grateful for the amount of people that served. And it was really cool to see 8 o'clock in the morning, there were lots of people here to serve, uh, lots of people bringing coffee and donuts uh, to just to do church together. And so I'm very, very grateful for um, you all. If you could switch that timer for me there, Matt, and I'll get right into it. Great text this morning. I hope you can hear me and it's not too bad of an echo, but a great text. Uh, Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34. And if you don't have a Bible, would you just raise your hand and someone can bring you one? Um, If that's your first Bible, uh, we'd like you to keep it. But if it's not, then maybe go ahead and return that so we can use it again next week. And I'm going to be in Exodus chapter 32, 33, and 34. it's a, it's a great passage, and we're in a series uh, called The Father God. And what we're trying to do with this series is really take a look at some of the attributes uh, that, that are kind of specifically attributed to God the Father. This is impossible to understand without kind of this idea of the Trinity. Even when I say that word Trinity, uh, some of you, your minds start bending and melting down. Because it's a hard concept to understand. This idea that God reveals himself as one God revealed in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's very difficult for us to get our minds around. But there's reasons why God wants to reveal himself on this level. And what we want to say about the Father-God sort of issues is that when God starts to reveal himself, the first way he really reveals himself is as a father. As a father, as a God, as a supreme being over all things. And then as time uh, kind of moves on, the story of God, we get to the New Testament, what's called the New Testament or the New Covenant. And he reveals himself as Jesus. Jesus is known as the Christ or the Messiah. Christ isn't his last name, is actually his, his savior name. Uh, so Jesus, the Messiah, so he had a physical name, but he's also a savior. And then Jesus reveals that God wants to work in us and through us and be revealed to as the Holy Spirit. And so that's why we, when we baptize people, we baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's why when we sing, you'll see different aspects of God. And this idea that, that what the Father God brings specifically is very important. And we've been in a series for a bit, and uh, this is the third week, and we talked about God's holiness and God's sovereignty because I think these are starting places. You notice it's Old Testament material as well. That means the first part of the Bible as God begins to reveal himself. And this is really important to us because um, these are the starting points in some ways of God's revelation about himself. As as anyone in any culture uh, kind of before ours, they have general concepts of who God is and that he's other than or separate from. 
Uh, that wasn't a difficult concept for the majority of people to understand up until basically Western culture decided to show up and said, no, we think we've got the corner on how spiritual things work. But these ideas of God's holiness and God's sovereignty are very important to build upon. But you know what's very unusual? This next element of God, that God is merciful. That's not a common thing. Most of the cultures don't depict a God or a supreme being as merciful that cares about people, that loves people. This is a very unusual part. So when, when ancient Hebrews, the people, the, the first people of God kind of hear this, they have something else about their God that very few other religions or spiritual people had, which was a God who actually cared and was personable. Even when you hit the Greeks and Romans, these are gods that are far off that couldn't have anything to do with those people. And when they got in the way and when they messed things up, uh, uh, they, they did bad stuff. That's where we got, we got rain and all that stuff. That's what they kind of believed. But very, in the very beginning story of God, he wants us to know that he's merciful. Now, the issue with merciful, this issue of mercy, is it's a hard concept for us to understand. And the reason why is because the Bible rarely uses the word mercy separate from a, 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 a phrase. And this phrase is found in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. And this is what it says. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. And so the first half of that, that phrase, the Lord is a gracious God. He's gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and sin. That's found no less than seven times, that phraseology in the Old Testament. Seven times. This is the cornerstone of the God of the Hebrews, the God of Israel, who then Jesus takes and he says, I'm that God. This is the most important information he wants us to get across about his mercy, that it's tied in all together. And so although you're going to hear about mercy, you're going to hear how it's all kind of tied in together. And I think there's elements of, of mercy that are important to understand. And I think that it's also important to understand it in, in its context. But every scholar that I looked at, you know, when I started studying this text, I went, I generally basically look at what's in the text and then I try to find out what's around the text to help inform it. And every scholar that I read said, you can't look at the story of Exodus chapter 34 without looking at Exodus 32 and 33. And I felt like saying, you don't know what preaching is like these days then because to try and tell you this whole story in a small amount of time is, is very difficult to do. But I'm going to do my best. And it, it, it's such an important text that I, I think it's, it's got great value. So let me just kind of dig in and retell you the story. This, there's not going to be a lot of illustration this morning. But the whole text is an illustration. The whole story kind of shows us. So right at the very end, if you're hanging with us for a bit, I think you'll really catch uh, the, the, the deep. Uh, the deep parts of the text. And so beginning in chapter 32, actually it's, it's really hard to start just in chapter 32. I know, preachers always say that. You really need some context to this, but you, you do need some context to this story. You need to hear that this story is not just kind of isolated, that these words don't mean a lot to you right now, 
or maybe they mean something, but they, they could mean so much more if given the context. It's kind of like when you go into a, a jewelry store and they have all of their jewelry laid out on nice black velvet. Ever been into a jewelry store? So guys, this is what a jewelry store is like, okay? You go in and there's like black kind of felt or velvet or whatever it is. I don't know if velvet exists anymore. But all of the jewelry is laid out on some sort of platform whereby the jewelry begins to look great because of the background that it's in. That's what our text is like, is we have to get that background before we can understand the brilliance of this text. And so the whole book of Exodus, what a fantastic book, first of all. This whole book is going gonna, is gonna to lead us to basically two things. God's ultimate definition of himself. Not just an attribute, but the definition by which when you say, what is your God actually like? You could say this. It's a good thing to memorize. And then Moses, which I think is the proper response. That's it. There's not really a lot of application, not five points on how to live your life better. But all I want to do is show you who I think God is revealing himself to be and then saying, I think we can respond like Moses responds. And so if you start in chapter 32, you're kind of halfway through the story, but ultimately the whole book of Exodus is an amazing story about how God miraculously saves his people out of slavery in Egypt for worshiping. In fact, what happens is, is the first 12 chapters or so of Exodus are the story of God working through a man by the name of Moses, the chosen leader. He was essentially the mediator between God and people. And God decides to choose Moses who has both Egyptian characteristics because he grew up in the Egyptian palace, but he's actually a Hebrew person by, by ethnicity. And so he's got these two things going for him. He knows both worlds. And God chooses Moses to work through him because what he wants to do is he wants to reach the, the, the leader of the Egyptian people, Pharaoh. And he wants to be the go-between between Pharaoh and his people. And so what what he does is he wants to reveal his glory to Pharaoh and his glory to Israel. And what he does is he sends a number of plagues that basically say uh, to Israel and to Egypt, I want my people to leave slavery and I want them to go out into the desert and I want them to worship me. In fact, some of us don't realize that that's actually a big part of the phrase that Moses use, uses to Pharaoh. If you've watched The Prince of Egypt, anyone seen The Prince of Egypt? Okay. You hear this phrase, let my people go. Have you ever heard that? Like watch some Old Testament movie, let my people go? Okay, that phrase is unfinished actually. Because the actual way that Moses talks to Pharaoh is, let my people go that they may worship me. Interesting. He doesn't just say, I want to take these people out of slavery, but he says, I want to save them from slavery, but I want to save them to worship. He's creating a people who know how to worship God properly, who know and understand who the God of the universe is. And then as people watch this, this group of people, Israel, as they watch them worship, they will then too want to worship the same God. That's been his plan from the very beginning. And so Moses has this interaction between Pharaoh and all these great amazing plagues and essentially it's all marked by something called the Passover which was this miraculous event where the last plague was actually the killing of the, 
Egyptian firstborn, unless you slaughtered a lamb, took its blood, and wiped it on the doorposts. And therefore, when the Spirit of God came over the people, and he saw that someone's innocent blood had been shed on behalf of the firstborn of that family, he passed over your household. Celebrated every year, still to this day, by Jews. We even at Urban Grace, we love some of the elements of this because the imagery is so important. We sang about the lamb this morning, how Jesus is the lamb. That imagery comes directly from the Passover. And so in doing this, God sends his people out of Egypt and into the desert where he is going to develop a worshiping people. And there's something very specific about the way that he did that because there he was going to deliver to them the words of worship you and I would, might know them as the Ten Commandments. Anyone heard of the Ten Commandments? Also known as the Ten Words. These words are God's description of himself and his standard by which his people, if they want to love and worship him, must obey. And God actually had specific instructions to Moses as he takes them out into the desert and he says, all the people are going to stay here. Moses, I want you to come up to the mountain and I want to deliver God, my word to you on the mountain, and then you will mediate and bring my word back to the people. And so even in that description, you see an understanding of God's holiness. Holiness is the Bible word for separate. We, we talked about this, and if you have questions about holiness, you should go back on our website or our YouTube channel, and you can hear about God's holiness. But this kind of shows the holiness of God. And no one was allowed to go up with Moses, not, no people, even Joshua, like his assistant, like executive Moses, was not allowed to go to the top with Moses. He had to go like halfway and keep watch on the people and wait for Moses to make sure he didn't die. Moses receives the word from God. God somehow miraculously puts his word on two stone tablets, which kind of sounds crazy, right? That God wrote on two tablets. It's not nearly as crazy if you know that previously to that, he split apart the sea and sent a bunch of plagues. So it's like, that's a pretty simple miracle compared to the rest of the ones in Exodus. So please don't get hung up on, it's kind of weird to hear God's finger drew in two stones. I mean, that, that's easy stuff compared to the kind of miracles that you, we've seen already. So Moses also hears from God instructions for the tabernacle. Now, this is also really important because the tabernacle will become this makeshift tent. Although beautiful, it was collapsible. And they were allowed to go out in the desert. What did the tabernacle represent? The presence of God. This was the way that God was going to inhabit a tent and he was going to bring his presence and only special people could go inside the tabernacle. And he delivered to Moses specific instructions on this. He was, he was saying, in essence, I can be approached. I am going to bring my presence, but you're going to do it on my terms and in my way. And on the way down, Moses finds out some bad news. It takes Moses about 40 days to hear God's word. He didn't eat. He just listened to God and it was such an amazing experience. I'm sure it probably felt like a couple of hours for Moses. But as he's going down, he says, hey, there's a major problem. He hears from God, there's a major problem. The people that I, you're gonna mediate to, they've decided to do things their own way. And that's the start of chapter 32. 
when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. Now this sounds really strange. Like you have just seen the God of the universe split a major body of water in front of you. You have seen multiple plagues. You have seen a country that has held you captivity in slavery for over 400 years completely release you in one afternoon. And in 40 days, you get a little impatient with what God's doing and you start to make alternative plans. I think we see this and we're like, what a bunch of idiots. How could they be so forgetful? And, and I think it's helpful for us not to see them as forgetful, but they panic. You ever done that? You ever panic? Like you ever pray to God for something to happen? You say, I will trust you completely that you can do this for me. But then he doesn't show up on your timeline. And you panic. And you make alternative plans. Okay, God, maybe that means that I should do this then. This is what the people did. They didn't try to replace God. They weren't that moronic. They didn't kind of go, well, I guess God is dead. They basically said, well, our mediator between us and God is dead. So Aaron, can you make us a mediator? Can you put someone in between us? And this is essentially what happens is Aaron gathers together some of their gold that they had gotten from Egypt and, and they form a calf. And that doesn't sound, that sounds really arbitrary to us. But I think honestly, what we have to hear that is that's exactly what the Egyptians used as a mediator between their gods. They were just ripping all of the imagery from the culture that they had spent 400 years in. And they said, well, maybe... God wants us to be like culture. So let's form a God that will mediate for us so that we can worship the true God. And as you go through the story, actually what happens is everything in chapters 32 and 33 is completely opposite of the word that Moses is going to bring down to the people. God gave instructions that you will use gold to make a tabernacle. They use gold to make themselves a calf. They rise up early in the morning to sing and dance to this God. He said, you will rise up in the morning to go hear from the Lord, the God of the universe. You can imagine that God's not pleased at all. It's completely opposite. I don't know if you've ever done this, but there are times in my life where I've asked my children to do something and they do the complete opposite. Ever happened to you? You're maybe a boss or a manager and you ask someone to do something a particular way and they not just don't do it that way, they do it exactly the opposite way that you just asked them to. What happens to you when that happens? Inside, do you start to boil like me? You're like, I told them that they need to do it this way. I just told them. I hear that in my household all the time. I just told you to do this. You did complete opposite of what I just told you to do. I think that's how we need to read this text. And there's all kinds of blame game going on. Moses comes down. He knows this is happening, but he's like Aaron, who by the way is his brother and his right-hand man as well. He's like, Aaron, what happened? What did you, this was on your watch. 
How in 40 days can this happen? He's like, I don't know what happened actually. A bunch of people gave me watches. I threw them in the fire and I'll pop this calf. I'm like, I would love to see Moses' face when he did that. Right. Aaron, like just say you did it wrong. Like, come on. In fact, some scholars say it was so almost unbelievable that in, in, in every way, it's like Moses didn't even have a response. It's like, okay, dude, whatever. But Moses is a mediator, and so he sees the holiness of God and God's careful, kind instruction. You see, the law doesn't come to teach people to obey. The law comes after the grace he's already given them, which sets a pattern of what we would call the gospel, that grace has always come before law. He knows this and he sees what is happening and they look like ungrateful, rebellious people who just want to do it their own way. I don't know if you can identify yet with this text, but I sure can. Because most of my sin revolves completely around me wanting to do things my own way, in my own way, in my own time. Sure, I love when God's a sovereign God and he can do all kinds of things for me, but when I have to wait for God to do things in his time and his way, I get impatient. And sometimes I kind of try to correct God. Well, maybe you thought this then, God. Maybe you're saying this. And in anger, Moses throws the tablets against other rocks and breaks them. And it looks like he's got a temper tantrum. Actually, I think what Moses is doing is probably more sign act than anything else. This phrase sign act is simply like, it it acts out what actually happened. And so he throws these tablets against the rocks because he's basically saying, you guys have already broken the law. I might as well break where it's written. God's not real pleased with Moses at this point. But he's really furious with his people. He wants so badly to create a people who know him rightly, who worship him rightly, who understand him rightly, who trust him well. And in basically a couple of weeks, they decide to do things their own way. And God actually says, you know what? I'm going to start over again. I did it once. I can do it again. In Genesis, he does that. That's the story of the flood, one of the hardest parts of Scripture we can comprehend. But essentially what God does is he says, I'm going to start over again, and I'm going to show you that it's not my fault, it's actually your fault. And guess what Moses does? Moses doesn't say, get him, God, like I probably would, right? That's how we are. We're like, get him. You know, sometimes you hear a good message maybe in church or you hear something positive and you think it's not for you, you think it's for the person that you should have invited today. You're like, oh yeah, can't wait till pastor preaches that because he'll get those suckers. Moses said, please God, don't do it. Don't do it. God, remember your promise. Remember that you made a promise, God. It said, you will create this people no matter what. You will create a people whose hearts are not made of stone, but are actually made of flesh. That they will love you and they will follow you. And God says, okay, I will do that, but I'm going to start with you, Moses. And Moses says, no, God, don't do that. 
don't just do it through me. And in Exodus chapter 33, this is what he said. He said, if, my, if your presence won't go with me, then I won't go. God, if you won't do it with these people, I don't want to do it. Kill me now. He puts his own life on the line because I think somewhere inside Moses knew how fragile he was and how he was actually in some ways just like these people. He just didn't participate in that particular act. And so God says, okay. It's one of the strangest passages of scripture because what do we expect? We expect a sovereign God in control who's able to split the Red Sea in half, save a people through that, a, a God who is so powerful he could send plagues when and where he wanted to and how he wanted to and how long he wanted to, that this God listens to the prayer of a man who simply says, please God, be who you are. I think it's such rich encouragement for us. It's why we pray in the morning. It's why we ask for mercy because we've seen God do this before. And God says, okay, I will. I will. But here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna get you to repeat the activity. So Moses, and this is chapter 34, verse one. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone, like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were the first tablets which you broke. I think that's God's way of getting a dig on Moses, actually. I'll do it again because you broke the tablets. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, the place where he originally got the word of God, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. That's literally a repeat of what has just happened. God's doing it all over again. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose up early in the morning, which is something basically in parallel the people did. They rose up to play. That's what it says in chapter 32. And went up to, on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So doesn't that make a little more sense? I know it took a long time to tell that story. But on the heels of the people's complete and opposite disobedience, this is how the Lord responds. Like so many of us are used to seeing the Old Testament God as a God of anger, as a God of wrath, as a God that can't wait to pour out all of his hatred on us for all of the things we've done wrong, that he's crouching at our door waiting for us to make mistakes so he can smite us with lightning. Any of you grew up with that image? You're afraid to sin because God might strike you to death with lightning? Feels like I grew up in a church where that seemed to be kind of the general consensus about God. And if there was any time that God could have said he was in the right and done that, this would have been it. In fact, there's some activities in chapter 33 that are weird, to say the least. 
where he asked the priest to be involved with killing his own people as a way of discipline. I can't get into all that. But you would think that God says, okay, who's in charge here? That's what I expect to hear in the text. Okay, this is the last time I'm gonna say this. You ever have your parents say that to you? It's the last time I'm warning you. I've said that for the last time, kids. Next time, you get put in a corner. Something my dad never said. No, he doesn't. What does he say? He proclaims himself. The Lord, the Lord. The Lord, the Lord. Sorry, Matt, can you turn to the second point there? Those of you who are just getting used to this idea, I'm halfway through. It says, the Lord, the Lord. That's all caps maybe in your Bible. That means Yahweh. That's his salvation name. That's not just a description. That's what he does. It quite literally translated means I am. It's a statement that he exists before us. I mean, that would be an impressive name to bring upon to a boss on your first day in, in an interview, right? What's your name? I am. I, was, I existed before you. I don't need to say any more. It's what God is saying when he describes himself as Lord or I am. I am. I'm not even going to define that for you. I just am. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Some translations read for thousands of generations. A generation is almost always referred to as a 40-year deal. Thousands of generations. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Does that sound like an angry God to you? Does that sound like a God who is waiting to bring his wrath upon you? He finishes off by simply saying, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I wanna go through this with you. And really, all I wanna do is us to slow down and catch a glimpse of this God. The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious. Next slide, Matt. Merciful and gracious. What are these words, mercy and grace? Sometimes we get confused and we, they're almost always in combination, but they're, they're, they're kind of, not exactly, they, they fit together. Mercy is God's goodness towards those who are in misery and distress. Towards those who are crying out for help. In some ways, the image comes to me like of a homeless person who asked me for change who are just asking for help. They don't deserve it. We haven't wronged one another. There's no negative history between us, but they're asking me for help. 
And if I give them change, food, it's not an act of grace, it's actually an act of mercy. God merciful. He wants to help. He loves to be asked. I want you to see and understand prayer like this. Not as prayer as like the cosmic prayer machine where you just plug in quarter prayers and pull the lever to keep God happy, but as a way of saying, there is a God, he is over all of the universe. He is so holy that you couldn't even exist if you actually got in contact with him who says, ask me for help. It's amazing. I can't even read this without crying because these words over and over again in my head, all week long, I'm like, oh, nothing tells me more I'm not like God than this phrase, these phrases. Do you feel that? You feel like, oh, that is so far from me. Like, are you there for people when they ask for help? Sometimes. What if it's not convenient for you? What if you don't really like the person? What if they ask for help and they've just done opposite of what you told them to do? How about then? How willing are you to be helpful? But our God's not like that. Grace, what's grace? Grace is God's goodness towards those who deserve punishment. It's kind of the opposite. So mercy is, is receiving what we don't deserve and grace is not receiving what we do deserve. Does that make sense? These people have disobeyed God. They agreed with him. They said, yes, create us to be a people who worship you. And then they said, no, we don't want to do it your way. One of the scholars said, you can't imagine anything worse that they could have done to God. It may not seem like that from the text, but if you read this text slowly, if you read through the book of Exodus, you will see that everything that they did was polar opposite of what God just had asked them to do. And when he wants to define himself, what does he say? I can't wait to show you how powerful I am. No. He says, I'm a God who's gracious. I won't give you what you deserve. Moses, come up the mountain. Let's do this again. We'll deliver the word again. It's amazing. When we say that Jesus Christ brings grace to us, this is what we're talking about. This word grace is so important to us, we actually even named our church after it. Urban Grace is not just a slick name for a church. It is why we have a church. The next one, slow to anger. I, I think this is the one that gets me. I don't know about you. Can anyone stand up and say you are slow to anger, honestly? I don't think there's anyone here who's like this. I've driven on the Deerfoot with some of you. I've driven on the Deerfoot with me. All week long. All that's happened to me is like, I was in the wrong and I can't wait to show that person I'm in the right. Had an incident this week. Somebody yelled at me. I don't think they should have. And do you know what I spent Saturday and Friday doing? 
winning every imaginary argument I've had with them in my head. You ever done that? I said to Leslie, guess how many arguments I've won this week with that person? She's like, all of them? I'm like, 20 for 20. I'm not slow to anger. I am quick to anger. Nothing is more surprising to me than this slow to anger business. It takes way too long to get under God's skin. He's like, I know you did opposite of what I wanted you to do. But I'm gonna keep going. I'm gonna keep revealing. I want you to hear this for those of you who struggle with this, who habitually sin, and you are afraid of God all the time. And most of your relationship, God, is, is based upon fear. And you ask forgiveness, not because you're really sorry, but because you're afraid of God, that he might actually bring his wrath down. I want you to hear this. He does not have a short fuse. Can I say that again? For those of you and I who need to hear that, God does not have a short fuse. I don't know about you, but I couldn't hear that enough. I couldn't hear that enough. And if you want to find out how, how you don't really reflect the God, no matter how hard you seem to try, play something competitive. I mean, I just double, triple dare you in your city group. Play something competitive and you'll find out where people are in the slow to anger chart. I think so. Anything. Play sports, apples to apples. It doesn't matter. Place categories, you'll still find out. Drive. Move slowly through a neighborhood where everyone is trying to go fast. You'll find out really quickly who's slow to anger. Our God is not like this. Our God is not like this. Keeping steadfast love next for thousands, for thousands. Matt, you can go ahead and turn that. For thousands of generations. Or sorry, it's abounding in steadfast love. Go back. Webster's Dictionary defines the word steadfast, meaning firmly fixed in place, immovable, not subject to change. Hallelujah. That's a Bible word for like sweet. He doesn't run out of love. I do. You do. He doesn't. Means when he says he wants to love you, there's nothing that can stop him. I love that. That's how he loves to show his power. Not by crushing people, but by saying, I will outlove you nine billion to one. Thousands of generations. I can't even love for a quarter of a generation. Thousands of generations. The word endure means to continue, to last, to remain firm under suffering or misfortune without yielding. The word forever means, I don't know if I have to define this for you, but for a limitless time. At all times, continually, eternally. I think what that means is continually and eternally. Steadfast love doesn't give up, never ends. 
Next one, Matt, now. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And some of you are like, aren't all those the same things? In some ways, yes, but I kind of like, I think it's helpful for us to actually separate these. Sin just means to miss the mark. It includes things that making a mistake, deliberately sinning. It means I, I, I didn't do what I was supposed to do one time. Transgression means deliberate sin. It means you know wrong and you still do it anyways. It's a, it's a deeper element to sin. Like there are times, I, I remember this as a parent. I, I'm a little particular on my pens. Some of them have really fine points and I had these fine point markers that I used to underline. I know I'm real neat nick when it comes to that. I actually have a ruler to make sure my underlining is straight. No word of lie, you can go in my Bible, there's, it's perfectly underlined. I'm kind of a big deal in the underlining world. But I, I'm, I'm real particular about my pens. And uh, I, I remember, I can't remember which kid, but they boiled my pen. I was like, don't do that. Don't, don't do anything negative with this pen. And one of my kids, I, I swear, I can't remember which one, so you can't pin it on either one of them. She looked me straight in the eyes and went, and jammed the point right in, into the table. Just looked me straight in the eye. It was like, watch me. Bam. Transgression. I don't know if they're the same stories, but it seems appropriate. The other kid stood up and went, sinner! <laughs> Deliberate sin. We laugh about that. Some of you, God says, don't jam the point of that pen down in the table and you look at God and say, forgive me. It's deliberate. You know full well it's sin. You know what God thinks of it and you do it anyways. Well, then what's iniquity? Iniquity is doing that every day, over and over and over again. Multiple months, weeks, years. It's a life of habitual disobedience and sin. Look at that. Which one of those does he say he forgives? Everything. He gives those, forgives those of us. That's a loophole that I just don't get. I get the one sin thing, but sometimes I'm like, really? You will forgive someone for deliberately sinning against you over and over and over and over again? And I think I almost heard God audibly say to me, yeah, well, I forgave you, didn't I? Yeah. I mean, I know my Bible pretty well. It's not all that helpful when it comes to sinning because it means I know more of what sin is than some. And it means I, I probably sin more than the rest of you. Because it doesn't happen very accidentally for me anymore. It's deliberate. The more you mature in Jesus Christ and the, as you follow him, the, the less you're like, well, I didn't know this was wrong. How good was it to read this? Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Everything. And then pile that on top of, help me, Jesus. Yeah, I give mercy. Forgive me, Jesus. I have grace. Please love me, Jesus. Thousands of generations. 
Isn't it good? Isn't it good to just hear this? Some of you get stuck on who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Someone asked me this week, oh, what are you gonna do with that part of the text? I said, well, look at what's just happened here. This is not a pushover God. This is a God who doesn't look the other way on sin. This is a God who just figures out a way to cut through it. And he says, even when you're deliberately sinning, he said, the maximum I'm gonna allow it to last three, maybe four generations. It should be the other way around. My love will last four generations, but I tell you, if you keep sinning, my wrath will last forever. That's not what God says. He reverses it and says, my wrath only lasts a short amount of time for those who deliberately do not want to follow me. There's consequences for sin. You don't, I don't just look the other way when you sin, but for those who believe in God and trust in him for forgiveness, this is what he says, thousands of generations. I've clearly gone over time. But all I want us to see is, now what do you suppose Moses responds with? If you're Israel right now, and a little hint, you are, what's your natural response if this is actually true about God? Arrogance? Frustration? Or is it Moses's? who says this, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. That's it. That's our application for today. Our proper response is to follow Moses' path, which I don't know if we can't, unless we don't really get, and we have not been changed by the goodness of God. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, if now, like, good night, I am on thin ice here. Oh Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for it is a stiff-necked people. You know what a stiff-necked person is? Someone who doesn't turn their head, right? You've met them, they're like this. Can't be moved by anything. You can't tell them anything. Pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is Moses bowing his head and worshiping, but also opening his arms and saying, take me, God. If this is who you really are, all I can think of is, take me to be one of your children. I want to be one of your kids. I want to be someone who receives mercy and grace. I want to be someone who receives forgiveness of my sin, my iniquity, my transgression. And I think I'll call the band up at this time because this is perfect for us. There is not much to this response in terms of content. But what we prayed this morning was not that you receive more information about Exodus, but that you felt God touch you today. Because Jesus actually said, I'm the new mediator. 
You no longer have to trust in someone like Moses, a person or an object or a thing or a place. You don't have to go to the tabernacle. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to go out into the desert. You don't have to go up into a mountain. You don't have to be in a cloud. You don't have to do all these rituals. You don't have to sacrifice people. I will be your mediator and it will be once and for all. And if you trust in me, you receive everything. You receive that God. It's a loophole that honestly never gets old for me. And as we gather, I think it's perfect for us to celebrate the Lord's table today. I mean, we do it every week, but I think this is perfect for us. And we can say, what, what, why are we here this morning? I think it's cool we got a building. It's great. We're so thankful to Bill and his team who allowed us to be here. And Legacy Kitchens. But why are we ultimately here? Not because we're good at rallying partners or volunteers or we have musicians or we have nothing better to do, but because of Jesus Christ, who with his own body and his own blood stood in the gap and took all of what we should have taken, like Israel, upon his shoulders on a cross like that and said, I will stand in the gap for the people that I love. These elements simply remind us of the broken body, that's the bread, and the shed blood, that's the cup. That this is how you have access to this God. And Hebrews chapter four says, let us boldly, let us boldly ask for grace and mercy in time of need because of what Jesus has done. So let's see this as an act of asking God for his grace and his mercy as we celebrate together.